Good to have you here and hope you're enjoying the nice wintry weather. We are uh, just beginning to make our way through the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles, uh, you might put a bookmark in Luke. Uh, it'll be well used. Uh, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 and uh, starting in verse 26. And while you're turning there, uh, I will just uh, tell you, you know, how it is sometimes for some of us in life. I don't know if everyone's like this, but a lot of us, we like to plan our lives and plan our days and plan our months and our years and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and I think for many of us, we spend a lot of time planning, like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to school here and I, this is going to be my major and this is when I'm going to graduate. And then sometimes, you know, something happens and it doesn't quite go the way we plan. Um, I've, over the years as a pastor, had a lot of conversations with people. Uh, you know, this is my plan for my life. I was going to marry this person. I was going to have this job, buy this house, have this, you know, 1.5 kids, the whole thing. And here was my plan. And then sometimes in the middle of our plans, life happens. And sometimes life doesn't really work along with our plans. In fact, sometimes God loves to just get involved in our lives and change things. And it, it made me think as I was thinking about the sermon for this week, it was about 20, 21 and a half years ago that um, I was kind of clicking along in my life. Uh, my wife and I, uh, no kids at the time. She was a, a public school teacher. I was a youth pastor. We loved our life. Uh, things were just really great. And I had a guy who was discipling me at the time. Um, in fact, goes to church here on Saturday nights and, and then pastors a church on Sundays. You might know Dwayne. And, and Dwayne was discipling me. And one day we sat down for breakfast, as we often did, and we were talking. And he said to me, he said, um, so how do you like your job? And I said, I love my job. And he's, yeah, I was a youth pastor. I said, how do you like your life? He's like, I love my life. Everything is perfect. It's like right on plan, going just the way I was hoping. And then he said, well, you know, funny you should say that because there's, uh, there's this little church over in Washougal and they're looking for a senior pastor. And I think that you should think about applying for the job. Now, at the time, I was just kind of like, well, that's, well, well, tell me about the church. And he told me a little bit about it. And I, I remember thinking, well, that's, that, that's nuts, all right? Like, that doesn't sound right at all to me, all right? Because first of all, I love my job. Uh, I've not been trained to be a senior pastor, so that doesn't make sense. Um, our, my wife was uh, pregnant with our first child, who would be born just about the time that we'd start here. And, uh, and then it would require some other things. We live in a parsonage, so we'd, we'd have to get a house. And uh, so there's all this, I don't know if you've ever looked at one of those stress charts, right? Like life change stress charts. But there's some things at the top of it, like um, it says like, don't, don't change your job, have your first child, move to a new community, buy your first house, right? Do all, you don't do all that stuff at the same time. So I remember at the time telling Dwayne, like, I don't think you've read that, I don't, you know, the stress chart. Like, I don't know if God's looked at this because it, it's not advisable. And he's like, well, I don't, you know, you could just put together a resume and apply for the job and see what happens. So I did. I put the resume together and, and dropped it in. And kind of long story short, I won't go through all the details, but uh, Gateway just, they, they, well, they got to the bottom of the barrel and there was like nobody left. And then they, they and then they finally came to me. So one day, one day, a guy named Dave, uh, two guys, Dave and Fred come to my front door and um, you'd have to know Dave and Fred. They're like knocking the door. Hi, we're from Gateway. Um, okay, come on in, sit down on the couch. I sat down and looked at him and, and it was really quiet. Yeah, like nobody said anything, right? Like actually Dave's probably listening to this. He still goes to Gateway, but he's a long haul trucker. So he's probably listening to this. Hi, Dave. Um, and, uh, but it's, you'd have to know Dave. So they're like, so we finally talk. They talk about the church and all that stuff and they leave. 
And I tell my wife, my wife's like, what are you thinking? I'm like, no way. This is insane. I love my life. My life is perfect. I want to be a youth pastor. I don't want to go anywhere else. So then anyways, again, I got some advice and they said, well, Lee, you know, if the church wants to candidate, just go ahead and candidate anyways. So I went ahead and candidated. And I remember the weekend I was here when I, I preached. I only preached a couple of sermons before that. Came, preached a sermon. The church is going to have a business meeting and, uh, and vote. So my wife and I went, um, we went to Top Burger, okay? And we were having lunch. And while we were having lunch, I told my wife, I'm like, you know what? I don't think God would want me to take this job unless I got a unanimous vote, okay? Gateway's a Baptist church. Have you ever met a Baptist church, <laughs> okay? We don't have like unanimous votes. So, you know, my wife's like, well, that seems like you're sabotaging. No, no, I just think, you know, it'd be a way of God saying that he wants me to have the job because I knew it would never happen and I thought I'm going to be safe and I can just keep the life I like. Anyways, we had lunch at Top Burger and ate fries and then um, we went home when we got home to the parsonage the answering machine was blinking remember the old answering machines with tape right so anyways like we had one of those and we pressed the button and I don't know who it was Dave it was Fred somebody and they said you know this is gateway and we had our vote and it was unanimous and uh, you know give us a call <laughs> I remember like I remember like listening to the message and looking at my wife who's my wife's just smiling she's like smirking at me you know she's got that look like I told you and uh, you know what do you going to do? And I just remember at the time thinking, but I love my life and I, I like it. And this was my plan. My plan was to be a youth pastor for life. And my plan was to live here where we were at the time in Vancouver. And like, why does God, why does God do those kind of things? Like, have you ever had him do that to you? You know, of course you have, where we make our plans, right? And then God enters. God loves to enter into our plans. And when God enters into our plans, it, he likes to push us to bigger things and to better things. And what that often means is uncomfortable things. He often likes to push us into things that are uncomfortable for us. It wasn't part of our, our plan. And that's what we want to talk about a little bit today because Christmas is essentially about God being with us. And as we uh, enter into the text today in Luke, this is what we're finding, that God wants to enter into human history. And whenever God enters into human history, enters into a life, he always kind of shakes us up. He always kind of rattles us because truth is, our plans are often really small, really self-centered, and things that we're very comfortable with. And God loves to come along and he loves to push us out into something bigger, into something better. Well, as we pick up the text today and we talk about Mary and we talk about Joseph and the angel Gabriel, we have to remember that 700 years before this story we're about to read, 700 years before, God had raised up a prophet named Isaiah. And Isaiah had prophesied some words that you're probably familiar with. 700 years before Jesus, and he says this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. God wanted to come and be with us. Why did we need God to come and be with us? Because we had a problem. Our problem is sin. It's been a problem for us, like for all of human history, right? God created a man, a woman, placed them in a perfect world, in a perfect garden, loved them perfectly, but they rebelled, but they sinned. And this is our legacy. We sin. We sin because we're born sinners, but because we also choose to sin. And so God had a solution for our sin. And the solution was Jesus Christ, that God would come in the flesh, that he would be born of a woman. That, that he would have a human body, that he would live, even in that body, that he would live a perfect life. And he taught us the truth of God. Ultimately, we know the story. He died on a Roman cross, but he didn't stay dead. 
He rose from the dead. And in doing so, he conquered sin and he conquered death. And after the resurrection, we know that he appeared to many, many people. He taught, he fellowshiped, he gave the great commission, and then he ascended to heaven. And we know shortly after that, the Holy Spirit descended upon uh, believers, that the church was born. It begins to grow and spread. It flourishes. It, it's spilling out beyond Jerusalem into the, the Judea and the areas around there. There's stories of miracles. There's stories of lives that are being changed and of healings and of, of baptisms. And ultimately, the news of this reaches the ears of a man named Theophilus. Now, we talked about him a few weeks ago. He was probably a Roman official. Um, somebody who might have been a newish believer, um, and he had some questions. He'd heard stories about Jesus. He'd heard stories about the miracles. And, you know, he asked questions. Did Jesus really claim to be God? Um, did he really heal people? Did he really feed thousands of people at a time? Was he really crucified? Did he really rise from the dead? Did he really ascend to heaven? Can he really save people from their sin? These are really important questions I think that this man is wrestling with. So what he does is, for an interesting thing, apparently he had an acquaintance named Luke. Luke was a doctor, a physician of the time. And so he went to Luke and he said, um, apparently Theophilus had some money, and he said, I have some questions I'd like them answered. Would you be interested in taking a couple years off of your medical practice um, and you know, closing the door? And I will, I will be the benefactor. I will pay for your travel expenses and your research and whatever it takes to be able to get to the bottom of this stuff. And so Luke began to travel around and, and read documents. We think he probably read the gospel of Matthew and Mark that have already been written. He interviews witnesses like Mary. We're going we're gonna to hear some information this morning that Luke could only have gotten by talking to Mary. We don't find this stuff in any other gospel. He listens to oral accounts and the result of all of this doctor's research is the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other writer. And last week we uh, talked about Herod. He introduces um, Herod of Judea, um, Jerusalem. We talked about the temple and Zechariah and Elizabeth, an old couple that couldn't have kids. Uh, he, was a, he was a priest Working in the temple, uh, an angel appears to him uh, named Gabriel and says, your wife is going to become pregnant. You're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. And today we're going to pick up the story. And we can infer that what we're about to read um, came from Luke interviewing Mary. Now, by the time Luke would have caught up with Mary and interviewed her, she was probably in her 70s at this point. So she's not really Mother Mary. Now she's like Grandmother Mary. And she's sharing her story with Luke. And the story goes something like this, that there was a time in Mary's life when she had things planned out and God entered the situation and changed her plans. In verse 26, we pick up the story. It says this. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, who we looked at last week, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, it says in the sixth month, this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Remember we mentioned last week, an elderly woman who becomes pregnant. Um, this is a miracle of God. For five months, she hides out. She just has like a five-month worship service. I think that's what's going on. She's hanging out with God, enjoying God, enjoying what God's done in her life. Now we're at the sixth month, and so she's kind of gone public at this point. And uh, Gabriel is involved in last week's story and in this week's story, one of two angels named in the Bible, Gabriel. And so he, six months earlier, he had been talking to, uh, to Zechariah, and now he has another assignment, which is to take a message to Mary. It's going to be Mary's big day. Now, she's in Nazareth. Now, today, 
Uh, Nazareth is a pretty big town of a few hundred thousand people. But back then, archaeologists tell us that probably just 50 to 100 people lived in that town at the time. And here's a few things that archaeologists have told us about Nazareth of that time. It was a farming town. Uh, It was a hick town, you know, if you will. Um, There were farmers. They had one well in the city. So everyone would gather together at the city. Everyone knew each other. They would, they would get water from the well. The average home was 500 to 600 square feet. And that not only housed the family, but some of the livestock and animals as well would hang out. Imagine that like, you know, in your garage. And uh, of course, no plumbing. And so they would, they would go to the city well and get buckets of water and they would bring it to the house. And most of the people who lived in that town were illiterate. Uh, And in fact, Nazareth didn't exactly have like a stellar reputation. Um, In uh, John 146, in fact, Nathaniel says, uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? It's, it's a rhetorical question. It was a, it was a dumpy hick town and your goal was to leave, right? If you were from there, you just wanted to get out and go somewhere important. So it takes place in Nazareth. And in verse 27, to, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Yes, Mary. So a couple of important characters here that you're familiar with. The first is Joseph. Now, what do we know about Joseph? Not a whole lot. In fact, we know a lot more about Mary than we know of Joseph, and we don't even know that much about Mary. But we know that he was probably a very young man at the time, given the culture, probably a teenager. And by teenager, I mean probably between the ages of 12 and and 14, 15, he would have been pushing it. Because in those days, you were usually married somewhere between 12 to 15 years old. Think about that for a minute. We know that he would have been poor. He was a carpenter. He lived in in Nazareth, which tells us a little bit, right? Just a a backwater town. Uh, He probably had known Mary his whole life. Remember, there's only 50 to 100 people living in this town. There's not a lot of options for marriage. So, you know, it could have been like uh, when he was like two or three years old, the parents were like, well, this is it. There's just, you know, there's him and there's her. And I guess, you know, so what the, a lot of times what would happen is the parents would get together and they would arrange the marriage and they would sign a contract and the parents were probably good friends. And this, this arrangement had probably been, um, had probably been arranged many years before uh, this story takes place. And we don't know, you know, maybe he's crazy about her. Maybe he just, he's head over heels over. We just, we don't know this, but this is, this is Joseph. And again, we're not going to see much more of Joseph. And we'll talk about that in the weeks to come and maybe why that is. But then there's a, there, there's Mary. Now, what do we know about Mary? She's probably illiterate. We know that because only 5 to 10% of the population was uh, educated in the first place, and women even less so than men. Um, her connection to God, therefore, like, like think about this for a minute. How, do, how, do you, how are you connected to God if you can't read? T- today, we can just pick up a Bible and read the Bible and read devotionals and go online, but if you're illiterate, what do you do? Well, her connection with God would be she would go to synagogue, And the rabbi would read a portion of scripture. And when a rabbi would read a portion of scripture, it's it's probably the only place all week you'd have somebody read to you from, from the Bible, which would have been the Old Testament. So oftentimes somebody like Mary, and we know this because of some of the things we'll hear her say in the future, probably would lean forward in her seat as the Bible was being read. And as it was being read, she would memorize it. She would memor she would lock it in her mind, and she would go over it and over it and over it again. And this would be a young woman whose connection with God would be through singing the Psalms, 
which we'll see in the future, and somebody who is dedicated to prayer, which again we'll see in the next few weeks. This is Mary. I grew up in a predominantly Catholic town in California, and Mary was a really big deal in my town. Uh, I, the, in the center of my town was Our Lady of Guadalupe, right? And this is like, this is the center of town. I didn't go to the Catholic church, but most of my friends did. And if you would go into their house, there was always pictures of Mary around the house. And, and some of them, I saw this one this week, and this is, you would see pictures like this of Mary. And, you know, sometimes in these pictures, Mary would look like she's in her 30s, and, you know, she'd have like some nice, you know, Nordstrom clothes going on there, like nice color coordination with her son. And um, she'd, she'd have a crown, right, going on there, and looks like maybe she had a manicure, and, and uh, she had like nice glowing skin, right? So she's getting a facial treatment, and, and uh, she's got a halo around her. And this is a lot of times when we see pictures of Mary, we think of things like this, but here's the reality, okay? She was, a, she was a poor peasant girl. She owned maybe one or two dresses, and she had to wear those all the time, so they wouldn't have been very clean. Um, she's someone who spent her days collecting firewood to heat the house and, and cook food for her parents. Um, she's going to the well and collecting water. She's illiterate. She can't read. She can't write. Dirty feet. She wears sandals or dirt roads. And, and this is Mary. Now, most scholars that, I, that I've read think that she would have been somewhere between 12 to 14. Um, some might say as old as 15 or 16. If she was 16, um, she was getting to be, you know, she wasn't a spring chicken anymore uh, at 16. People, you know, people were getting worried. Is she going to get married? You know, is anything going to happen in her life? And, uh, but she was probably around 13 years old when this story happens. Like, for those of you who are parents, think about, think about your, if you have a daughter when she was, when she was 13 years old or a 13-year-old girl that you know. I mean, we, maybe we trust our 13-year-old girls with a smartphone, probably not, probably not an iPad yet. They, don't, they can't vote. Can you imagine if we let all the 13-year-olds vote in our country? Like, we don't give them a, a license, right? Because we don't trust them behind the wheel of a car, and, and rightfully so. But, but God decides to let a 13-year-old give birth to his son and raise this, this, this boy. I mean, like my daughter's 16. I, I love that girl. But when I think back when she was 13, <laughs> you know, 14 years old, I shudder to think that God would put a responsibility like that. Think about this for a minute. That God would put a responsibility like that on a 13-year-old. God may have known something about 13-year-olds that, that we don't know. Mary and Joseph were betrothed. So they did marriage a little bit different in those days. Um, it was a pledge to be married. It was a, it was a year-long kind of thing. Usually a girl would be 12 or 13 years old in that day, and the parents would come together, and um, they would sign a contract, um, kind of a good-faith contract. And uh, they might have done it because it was, it was smart financially, or, or maybe it would provide security for their son or their daughter. And so it would begin with a simple ceremony. There would be a religious leader who would oversee it. There would, they would read some scripture. Uh, they would pray. They might have a sip of wine at the end of the ceremony. And then the betrothal would last about a year in length. And during that time, um, the young woman would be planning her wedding, but they wouldn't live together. She'd live with her parents, 
And he would usually live with his parents. They were that young. Um, they didn't live together at the time. They didn't have a physical relationship during that time. There's no physical intimacy. Um, and then on their wedding day, they would finalize the ceremony and then they would move in and uh, to their house together. And a betrothal was so serious that even though they didn't live together, it would, it would take a divorce to, to terminate it. So this is a very, very serious thing. So we have Mary and we have Joseph that live in Nazareth. They're betrothed to each other. She's a virgin. And then God gets involved. And whenever God gets involved in our lives, there's always these big measures of grace, which we find here in verse 28. And when he came to her, that is Gabriel came to Mary, and he said to her, greetings, O favored one. Uh, the Lord is with you. That word favored is the, the word grace that we often translate as grace, charis. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the same and tried to discern what, what sort of greeting this might be. So the angel appears and he says, hey, Mary, you know, how's it going? God's, you know, God, God's favor on you. And it says she immediately starts to think, okay, what kind of, is this a, is this a good, is it going to be a good conversation, right? Is it going to be a bad conversation? Um, she's trying to figure it out. Am I in trouble? Um, is it going to give me a head start? You know, how's this going to, how's this going to go? And the angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found, you have found what? Favor. You have found favor with God. We'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive. So just picture with me for a minute. It's like, we don't know what Mary was doing. Did he, did he wake her up? Was she, was she chopping wood? Was she at the wall? We don't, we don't know what she was doing. But all of a sudden, he just appears to her. And can you just imagine he just drops this bomb on her, all right? Like really quick. He's like, are you taking notes, Mary? Here we go. You're going to conceive in your womb. She would have understood that meant immediately before she's married. Got some news for you, Mary. You're going to conceive in your womb and you're going to bear a son as he can start painting the room blue and you shall call his name Jesus and he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Are you keeping up here? There's a lot of stuff here. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and, and of his kingdom. There will be no end. So there's going to be something different about this guy. And the angel said to her, he said to her at the beginning of this, remember, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now that word favor is the word charis in the Greek or the word that we get grace from. The word grace means to receive an unearned gift, uh, to be chosen for a blessing, something you didn't earn, something you didn't deserve. Now when we talk about salvation, we talk often about the fact that the essence of salvation is grace. That God saves you not because of your good deeds, not because you deserved it, not because you earned it. God saves you because of his grace, because he's chosen to give you a free gift. See, religion is about what you do to earn God's favor, but Christianity is about God's unearned grace and his love that God has for no one's from nowhere. And so it says that God has grace on Mary. This is very, very important. And the question we would ask, and it's an important question, is why would God favor Mary this way? Why would he give her this kind of, of gift? And the answer very simply is just because of his grace. God just, think about it. God could have said, God could have done anything he wanted. God could have said, I'll pick a wealthy young woman who can raise up my son in a comfortable manner. Um, I'll pick an affluent woman, a significant woman, an educated woman. I'll pick a woman who lives in a wonderful town who can, where my son can get a wonderful education and, and there'll be prominence and significance and, and have good living conditions. But that's not what God chose. He could have chosen any of that, but he chose Mary 
who lived in Nazareth. Now, here's what's important to understand. God chose her because of his grace, which means she hadn't earned it and she hadn't deserved it. Right now, as we'll talk about, she's an incredible woman of faith. But this gift that God gave to her was not, it wasn't like there was a, like there was a contest and God said, let's see which woman wins, right, this contest. Let's see which woman can go without sinning the longest or be whatever it is, and then she can bear my son. That's not what happens. God just decides to pick Mary out of his grace, out of his choice. So here's what we can say. God did not choose Mary because she deserved it. God chose Mary out of his grace. That being said, Mary is a wonderful, amazing example of faith, one that we would want to emulate. In verse 34, notice it says, when Mary heard all this from the angel, she says to the angel, how will this be? Since I am a, I'm a what? Virgin, all right, there you go. Now, think about this. Remember last week? The angel comes to Zechariah and says, your wife's going to give birth. And remember, Zechariah's like, what? <laughs> like, that's crazy. That doesn't make sense. And apparently he didn't believe the angel. And because of that, he was mute for nine months during, during Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, Mary doesn't have unbelief. Mary has a question. Now, those are two different things. Zechariah had unbelief. Mary has a question. Is it okay to have questions? Absolutely, right? That's how we learn. When we read our Bible and we have questions and we seek the answers, that's how we learn. That's how we grow. That's how we get answers. See, faith is where we say, I believe it. God, I believe what you're saying. I just, I'm trying to understand what you're saying, right? Like, like I want to be informed. I want to know the truth. I want to get the details that are available. Faith is where you say like, God, I believe that the Bible is your word, but I have some questions about your, your Bible. Like, how did we get it? And, and, and how can we trust it? And how is it translated? And, and how did you inspire people? It's okay to have questions based on faith. It's okay to say, you know, I believe that Jesus was God in man. 100% God, 100% man. God, I just don't know how to, I don't know how a person can be 200%. I don't know that. I, so, you know, how did that work? Like, I believe in the Trinity. I believe in three in one. Three distinct persons, one substance. Don't get it, God, I have some questions, right? Is it okay to have questions? Yes, Mary had questions, but she also had faith. She's just asking, okay, God, I'm just a middle schooler. I don't know a lot about human physiology and reproduction, but I do know this. Virgins don't tend to give birth. So I'm just, you know, she's like, I'm wondering, God, how this is gonna work. She's not arguing with God. She's asking a fair question. And so God gives her a fair answer. And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It's been noted that the phraseology that's used here uh, harkens back to uh, Genesis where it says that the Spirit hovered over the face of the earth. It's really kind of a cool thing. Uh, and therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing, for nothing will be impossible with God. I could ask you the question, do you really believe that? That nothing is impossible with God? Do you believe that God could create the universe out of nothing? Do you believe that God could take an elderly woman past her childbearing years like Elizabeth and cause her to be pregnant? 
Do you believe that God could take a virgin like Mary and cause her to miraculously have a son? Do you believe that God could could come down to this earth and take on human flesh and enter into history and that even though people killed him, do you believe that he could rise from the dead? That he can raise us from the dead? Do you believe that Jesus can raise you from the dead? You may say, well, that sounds impossible. But do you believe it by faith? Do you believe that God can forgive your sin through the work of Christ on the cross? See, if we don't believe that, then why are we here? If we don't believe that, then we should just, we should just pack out of here, lock up the doors and go home. See, nothing is impossible with God. This is why as Christians, we are joyful. This is why as Christians, we are hopeful and we sing praises to God and we worship God and we pray to God because this is our hope. But I love this in verse 38. And Mary says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. By the way, this is, this is the ESV and this is probably, I, I think the best translation I could find, but the, the, the force of the text is that Mary is basically throwing her feet are throwing herself at the feet of the angel and saying, I am the bond servant of God. God can do anything he wants. And the angel departed. She's a simple and uneducated girl with a simple faith, but it's sincere. She actually believes God. She has the audacity to believe this crazy thing that the angel tells her. And it made me think about how how probably most of us in this room are more biblically, biblically educated. We, we know more doctrine and more theology, and we've certainly read more of Scripture, studied more of Scripture, heard more of Scripture than Mary ever did. But the question is, do we believe it? Do we have a sincere faith like she had? Here is a young woman who actually trusts God at his word. So her response is easy. I mean, her response is just whatever God wants. I'm good with that. See, I think for many of us, like Mary, we have our life charted out. We've got the next day, the next week, the next month or year charted out. And our goal is, you know, we have our plan and we want God to bless it and we want God to make it happen. And if God should come into our story and God should rewrite our script and it's going to be harder or more uncomfortable or more difficult, oftentimes we find ourselves frustrated with God or we even find ourselves resentful of God. We find ourselves pushing back on God. God, didn't you read the stress chart? God, don't you know this isn't a good time to move? We get a little frustrated. Mary has a script. Mary's script is, I'm engaged to Joseph, right? I'm going to get married. Mary's script is, we're going to have a wonderful wedding. And, and I'm going to actually fit in my dress. I won't be nine months pregnant. And, and then we'll get married. And, you know, then we'll make some babies when we're married. And everyone will respect us and, and, and think we're good and virtuous people. But God comes along with a new script. And, and in, in God's script, people are going to talk. People are going to gossip. People are going to slander. They're going to think she's a tramp. Uh, and Mary's response is, hey, God, that's, that's okay. <laughs> Whatever you want. I love you, God. I trust you, God, says the middle school girl, right? Here's what it reveals about Mary. She loves God more than she loves her reputation. Could that be said about us? She loves God more than her dream wedding. She loves God more even than being married to Joseph. See, she doesn't know. She does not know at this point in time how it's going to go. But she should have known how it would probably go. What's probably going to happen is when Joseph finds out that she's pregnant, 
And she tells him this crazy story about an angel and about God. Here's the one thing Joseph's going to know. He's not the dad. He knows that for certain. He knows that for sure. And under the law, he can, he can divorce her. In fact, one of, the, one of the smallest consequences is that he would divorce her. So much more could happen to her in those days under that law. And so she's willing to be pregnant and maybe yet unmarried in that culture, which is a huge thing. I mean, the invitations are already out. Everyone knows they're getting married. They're registered at Target. People are going to gossip and mock and publicly ridicule. And she's not saying like, I don't care. It doesn't bother me what people think. She's not saying that. She's just saying she trusts God even more than all of that. Like in the blink of an eye. It's not, here, Mary doesn't, you know, the angel doesn't say like, okay, Mary, here's your plan. And now here's God's plan. And Mary's like, now, hold on just a minute. <laughs> I'm going to make a pros and cons chart. I'm going to think about it a little bit. I'm going to go ask some friends, you know, like uh, get some advice. And I'll, I'm going to pray about it a little bit, right? She's just like, okay, whatever God wants, God gets. Marriage, reputation, security, whatever. I'm the servant of the Lord. It's his will that I want. That's Mary. So what are we to think of Mary, by the way? And it's a good question to ask because some traditions in Christianity have gone way beyond the Bible when it comes to Mary. Uh, for instance, uh, and I even have some friends that are involved as, as uh, leaders in churches where they, they'll say things like, I had some interesting conversations this week where some church traditions will say, well, actually, um, not only was Mary a virgin, but her mother was a virgin as well. Maybe you've heard that in some churches. Of course, that's not in the Bible. It sounds neat, but it's not in the Bible. It's not scriptural. Um, some churches will say that she was sinless, just like her son. Of course, again, that's not true. And we'll see in weeks to come when she offers sacrifices and recognizes Jesus as her Savior that she says she has a need for a Savior. The Bible never says she was sinless. The Bible never says her mother was a virgin. Um, some people believe that she was a perpetual virgin, that, that once she, she had Jesus, she, she never had a sexual relationship with Joseph. And yet we know that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Um, the Pope said in recent years that Mary is a co-redemptor along with Jesus. Again, the Bible says that there's only one person who's died for our sin, that there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. So in some church traditions, they pray to Mary. Had a, just an amazing conversation with a guy this week who teaches that in his church, and they pray to Mary, and we had a big, long conversation, and, and we talked about the Bible, and they, they've got no Bible. There's no biblical precedent for doing that. Um, but some people will say, well, Mary was Jesus' mother and he has special sway with Je she has special sway with Jesus. So if you want to ask Jesus for something and you're not sure if he'll give it to you, go to his mama, you know. You just talk to his mom. And if his mom's into it, then she'll go and she'll get it, you know, because she's his mom and that's the way it works. Like, so if these things aren't true about Mary, what is true? What's a biblically informed view of Mary? Well, I would say it's this. She wasn't perfect. She wasn't sinless. She wasn't a perpetual virgin, but she was a woman of great faith, tremendous faith, willing to let go of her reputation or marriage or comfort or security in order to, to do whatever God wanted her to do. And while Mary should never be an object of our faith, she is a, a wonderful example of faith. And every one of us should aspire to have a faith like hers. And I'll tell you, one of the things I've thought a lot about this week is, again, thinking about the fact that she was 13, 
14 years old. It makes me think about 13 and 14-year-olds today and 15-year-olds and 19-year-olds and 25-year-olds in our culture, right? Our adolescence today. In fact, it's interesting because I've, if you've studied the history of adolescence and the definition of adolescence, you'll notice that it, it's been getting, it's being stretched farther and farther. Now there's some groups that will push adolescence up to 27 years old. I've seen some 27-year-olds. I get it. I, like, I know why we're doing that, you know? Um, and in our culture today, people say it's just natural and acceptable for teenagers and people in their adolescence to be immature and irresponsible and hormonally driven and party and drink. We just know that. They don't know what they're going to do with their life. They're trying to get it all figured out. And you know, that's our culture. And our culture is just given license. You don't have to know what you want to do with your life. You don't have to have your own faith. You don't have to have control of your life. You don't need to be holy. But here's Mary, teenage Mary, 13-year-old Mary, who has her own faith. It's not her mom's faith. It's not her dad's faith. It's her faith. She's worked it through. She loves God. She's chosen to be sexually pure. When God comes to her with a challenging message, she's capable of having that conversation with God. How many of us adults aren't even capable of having a hard conversation with God like that? And here's this young woman. And I think if Mary were able to speak to our adolescents today, she would probably say something like, you guys need to stand up and get a spine and defy, uh, defy culture defy culture, rebel against culture, rebel against sexual impurity today and selfishness and narcissism and choose holiness. You can do that at 13 years old. You can choose to be holy. You can choose to have faithful intelligence and to serve other people and to love God. And this is part of her example to us. With that being said, given what a wonderful person Mary is, I feel like it's important for us to remember that this is all about Jesus. It's not all about Mary. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this text is going to introduce us to things about Jesus that we will revisit in depth over the next couple of years. But I want to just kind of point out to you quickly a few things that it tells us off the top about Jesus. Looking back in verse 31, it says this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. A couple things, just really quick, that he tells us. The angel says that Jesus will be fully man. We'll talk a lot about this. It means he has a human mother. It means he is born like we're born. He will grow up like we grew up. He didn't, he didn't come out of the womb speaking Proverbs and, and theology, right? He had to learn to speak like everyone else. He had to learn to walk. He had to be fed and be changed like every other child. So he's going to be fully man, but he's also fully God. The Bible says that he's the son of the most high. He's the second member of the Trinity with the same attributes and substance of the Father and the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that. So how can he be 100% God and 100% man? Well, yeah, I don't know. We'll spend two years uh, talking about it and then we still won't know. But it's a great concept. Uh, he's our savior. His name is Jesus, which means he saves from sin, right? He reminds us we're all sinners by nature and choice. And that's why God has sent us a savior to deal with our sin, to die in our place, to rise for us and to save us from sin and death. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. He is a king over an eternal kingdom. He, he oversees a kingdom that is bigger than this world, that is beyond this world, a kingdom that is eternal. And he is eternal. It says he will rule and reign forever. Jesus didn't start his life when he was born on this earth. He existed from eternity past. 
and, and will exist forever. He's eternal, no beginning, no end. Even if men kill him on a cross, he won't stay dead. Verse 35, therefore the child will, uh, to be born will be called holy, the son of God. He is holy, that is, he'll live a sinless life. And nothing is impossible, he says, with God. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Everything that Jesus sets out to do, he can do. Because God is sovereign. And God has a plan. And God is working in history. God has a plan. Now, here's the, here's the challenge as we close this today. The challenge is when we read stories like this, sometimes we are reminded that we are tempted at times to think that we are the center of the story. That we, we, we are tempted to think that our life is about us. And our money is about us. And our time is about us. And our, our abilities are about us. And here's what happens. When you go through life thinking that you are the center of the story and everything else is there to support you, right, what you're going to find is you're going to make plans and those plans are going to change. You're going to have plans for people and they're going to do something else. You're going to have plans for your health and your health is going to do something else. Plans for your job, plans for your family, and things aren't always going to work out that way. And when that happens, when those plans change, if you think you are the center of the story, you'll be frustrated, you'll be confused, you'll be bitter, you'll be angry. Because you're not the center of the story. Jesus is the center of the story. Jesus is our Savior. We don't belong to ourselves. He bought us with a great price. So we love him. We serve him. We trust him. When he walks into our life and says, I know you had a plan. I know you thought it was pretty cool. I have a better plan. I have a bigger plan. Jesus, it looks harder. It is kind of harder. It's going to be awesome. You're going to love it, all right? That means we do what Mary does. We say, that's right. You're the center of the story. You're Jesus. You're beautiful. You're a God. I love you. Let's do it your way. Let's go with your plan. I know it may be difficult, but nothing's impossible with you, God. Let me ask you the question, where do you need to say that to Jesus today? Where do you need to say to Jesus, you know what, you're the center. God, I've tried to be the center of my family, center of my marriage, center of my job, center of my neighborhood, center of whatever it is. And you know what, God, it's not working. I need you to be the Lord. I need you to be God. I want to put you at the center. I want to put you on the throne. I am your servant. I love you. It's not about me. It's about you. It's about your kingdom. My life isn't my own. It belongs to you. So whatever your will is, God, whatever your will. I know we don't even want to utter these words sometimes as Christian. I find Christians are like oddly superstitious at times. I'll tell Christians, tell me, oh, I would never pray to God. God, make me sick if you want. God, you know, if you want me to be barren, if you want me to be a failure at work, I'm afraid. You know, sometimes we think like God's just up in heaven going, I dare you to say it. Because if you say it, I'll do it, right? Like this is a crazy view of God. God loves us. God has our best plans in mind. So it's where we say to God, whatever you want, sick, healthy, rich, poor, single, married, barren, fertile, failure, success in the world's eyes, whatever it is that like Mary, we would respond. We would respond and say, you are the Lord. You are my savior. I'm your servant. I'm your child. I love you. Whatever you say, God, let's do that. Let's pray together.